Bible with you. Hope that you might, uh, but if not, there are Bibles there in the seat backs in front of you. Let me encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you're a little bit new to Bible study and you grab one of those Bibles, just find yourself in the second half of the Bible. The first part is called the Old Testament. second half of the Bible is called the New Testament. And the first four books of the New Testament are named after the four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and so the, the second book is the gospel according to Mark, and we're going to look toward the end of his gospel account of the life of Jesus in, in beginning in chapter 15 in just a second. You know, when, as I think about uh, the theme that I began to kind of rumble around in my mind and in my heart getting ready for this particular Easter Sunday, I kept coming back to the idea of, of hope restored. Uh, when, when, we, when we look at the news, when we think about our own lives, uh, you troll across Facebook or Twitter or uh, you sit down and, and read a, a news magazine or a newspaper or you, or you watch whatever it is that you watch, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or, or whatever website you go to, uh, people are lacking hope. Uh, people seem to not know where to turn to to find answers for the very real problems that are in their lives. And one of the interesting ways that this shows up in our lives is really if you go to the movie theater, that people are always looking for hope. Even our movies show how desperately it is that we want a hero, whether it is the over-the-top kind of hero like Iron Man and Tony Stark, who is so incredibly sure of himself that he's going to save the day, or whether it's the somber and the very serious Captain America who knows that the country is broken but he, and, and he wants to do something about it, or whether it's the very overdue kind of hero like Black Panther. Uh, that could potentially change the face of the planet, uh, and with the you know, and now it's the it's the hashtag that runs across the internet of Wakanda forever. And some of you are looking at me like, Pastor, we have no idea what we're talking about here. <laughs> trust me, trust me. But there's all sorts of other illustrations as well, from our superhero movies to the romantic comedies to musicals like The Greatest Showman, and and even uh, sci-fi movies like The Last Jedi. I mean, all of us are looking for answers, and we're looking for that hero who can restore hope into our lives, because for the most part, we have come to the end of ourselves. I mean, we have tried to figure it out as best as we can. We've been as nice as we can to our neighbor. We have refused to kick our dog. We have been, you know, a good employee at work. We have, you know, sent nice presents to the grandkids all throughout the year, and still, there's all sorts of problems in our lives that we just really cannot solve. And and so we look for answers, and we look for a hero. We look for forgiveness. We look for a better life. We are looking for hope. And Easter is this offering of something new. But the interesting thing about an offering is that it has to be accepted. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you if you would be willing to accept this Easter offering. So let me read for us, beginning here in Mark chapter 15, verse uh, or, and, uh, and, and in verse 16, and I'm going to read through chapter 16, verse 7. So, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but follow along with me if you would. It says there in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the palace that is the, the governor's residence and called the whole company together, and they dressed him in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. 
And they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying homage to him. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots, that's like throwing dice, for them to decide which each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he cried out in, in Hebrew, and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes down to take, to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There was also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. And in Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him, and many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, that's the religious ruling council, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate, the political leader, and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. 
He is not here. See the place where they put him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. A lengthy passage, but an important passage. Uh, The most crucial passage of the entire Bible, it is what all of our belief hangs upon, is this, this idea of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, I told you that in a few minutes I'm going to ask you to accept a particular offer, so I guess I should tell you what that is. It, it comes in three parts that I think the offer comes to us in this particular passage. The first offer that we receive is forgiveness is offered through the cross. We read this lengthy portion of Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16 all the way through verse 28. What we see is that Jesus is willing to pay a ransom on our behalf. He is willing to pay a price that rightfully we should be paying. In fact, in one of the other gospel accounts, in the gospel of Matthew chapter 20, from the very lips of Jesus while he's teaching his followers, he says that the Son of Man, now this is a way that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea that Jesus is willing to pay a price that he doesn't owe. You think about this word ransom. We often think about it in terms of somebody's been kidnapped. So some, some wealthy heiress, you know, to some great uh, wealthy parent who is a, a mogul or a billionaire gets kidnapped by bad guys. And, and so the bad guys demand that the wealthy parents pay a ransom for the release of the child. And this is very much the same idea, that, that we are held captive. And, and, and there has to be a price that is paid for us. And, the, and in, the, in the scenario of the modern-day villain and criminal, you know, the bad seed who takes captive the young gal who was minding her own business and just because she has a wealthy father, it's the idea that the wealthy father is going to pay for her to be released. But when it comes to the spiritual realm of what Jesus does on our behalf, it's not that a bad guy came and got us. The ransom that has to be paid is not because somebody did something to us. It's because we ourselves have been rebels. We ourselves are the ones who have tripped into our sinfulness. We have given ourselves over to all sorts of, of, of ill in our own lives, of, of sin and of rebellion, of jealousy, of bitterness, of hatred, of animosity. We're the ones who have put ourselves in a position where there is a price that needs to be paid. God has every right because He is holy, because He is perfect, because He dwells in perfection to to look down upon us in all of our sinful nature. He is within His rights to say we're not acceptable because we're not. We are messed up, jacked up, and completely broken. And yet Jesus offers His blood as the ransom payment for our own rebellion. We, the ones who have put ourselves in the shackles of sin, we are the ones who have put ourselves in the prison of rebellion. And Jesus says, I'll go to the cross as a perfect man, and I will pay the ransom. I will be the sacrifice on behalf of the people who are dirty with sin. And that's me. That's you. That's us. And the cross offers us an opportunity to be forgiven. And so my question is, do you want to be clean? If you want to be clean, the good news is that Jesus paid your debt. 
And all of us have this debt. All of us have this debt of sin before a holy and a righteous God. And we fool ourselves when we think, no, 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 not me. You know, maybe the guy down the road who's not nice to his wife. Maybe the lady at work who's always skimming off the top of the till and taking a little bit of extra money out of the petty cash drawer. Not me. Maybe the criminal that's in the jail today. Not me. Maybe the person who is less than me. But this is all of us. I mean, we are all broken with sin. And, and we are, we're willing to admit it when it gets right down to brass tacks. And the beauty is that Jesus, who has no sin, goes and pays a price that he doesn't owe because he loves us so very dearly. So the forgiveness is offered through the cross. Secondly, access is gained through the torn curtain. This is a, a little detail that's in this passage that sometimes get, gets kind of skipped over really quickly, but I want to build it out for you. To, I want to show you the incredible significance of this moment in verses 37, 38, and 39. It says in verse 37 that Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. This is the moment of the death of the Son of God. And then it says in verse 38, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Just in your mind, think about a big rectangle. This is, I'm going to describe the temple for you. Uh, some of you already, you, you may already kind of know this. You've seen a, a drawing of it or a diagram of the Jewish temple that used to exist in Jerusalem. In AD 70, it got, uh, it, it got sacked and destroyed. And so it's not there any longer. But it was a big rectangular building, and the, and the far outer courts were for people like us, non-Jewish people, where we could go and we could hear the priest and we could watch all of the, all of the sacrifices taking place, and we could hear them teaching from the Old Testament Scriptures. And then the next set of courts inward were for Jewish families, women and children, so that they could, uh, they were a little bit closer in. The next court in was the final public court where Jewish men would go. They would take in their, their lambs or their goats or their oxen or whatever financial sacrifices they were going to give or uh, the first fruits of their, of their crops. And then you would get to the next section a little bit further in, and it's where the priests would operate in the public, where they would teach, where they would offer sacrifices. And then there were two sections that were further in called the, the holy place and then the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the smallest, most interior part of the temple, and it's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And you don't open up the Ark of the Covenant or it melts your face off, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Come on, help me out here. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. One person got my joke. And in the Holy of Holies, surrounding the Holy of Holies, was a curtain. And, and it wasn't a curtain that's like in our houses where it's a curtain that you put over your windows just to block out the sun. It wasn't even like the high-dollar curtains that, you know, would completely black out a room. It was this incredibly thick tapestry that at some points of this curtain, it was four inches thick. So it was this really stout piece of material that separated the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, from everything else in the temple. And it says at the moment of the death of Jesus that this four-inch thick piece of fabric gets torn in two from top to bottom. 
It is as if God himself reaches down and he says, there will no longer be separation between my presence and the people of the earth, and he rips it in two from top to bottom. It is a feat that no human being could ever accomplish. It, was, it is estimated that the, the curtain itself was about 44 feet tall. And so it was massive in every kind of dimension that you can think about. And this is the, the sign and the symbol from God that he is opening up the doorway for us to come into his presence because the Holy of Holies is where the presence of God hovered above the Ark of the Covenant where one high priest one time a year could go in and make a sacrifice for all of our sins. And yet God now is tearing it up the veil. He's tearing down the curtain. He is granting us access to him. It says later on in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, that he, Jesus, has inaugurated for us a new and a living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. It is as if that curtain is only a mere representation of the very body of Jesus, and that as Jesus gives up his body, as he gives up his flesh as this sacrifice for our sin, that as it is broken on our behalf, that God is tearing down the barrier between who we are and who he is, that he is making a new and a living way. You see, we've been trying to reach God throughout all of human history. We've always been trying to get to him. We, have, we, we ate the forbidden fruit that would give us knowledge to be like him. We tried to build a tower to get up to the heavens. Uh, we are the ones who are the kings who say to the heavens, who say to God, but look what it is that I've made with my own hands. Look at all my great accomplishments. We think by our legalistic keeping of rules and regulations as in the law that we can make it up to God. We satisfy ourselves, we make our own idols, and sometimes we make idols out of ourselves. And, and we think that somehow we can get to God. But as one very wise pastor by the name of Burke Parsons said not too long ago, he said, we need to remember that the symbol of our faith is a cross, not a ladder. That's pretty good. The symbol of our faith is not about something that you can use to crawl up to God, that you can use your own effort, that you can use your own insight, that you can use your own wit and wisdom and accomplishments, and you can make your way up to God. The symbol of our faith is the cross, that God is the one who has made the way for us. And so, He is, he is making an offer of access to us. So, do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? Here's the good news is that God actually wants to know you. I mean, there's a lot of philosophers and theologians and academics and mystics and religious people and good people and moral people and nice people who say, I want to know God. But the good news that we find in Jesus Christ is that God actually wants to know you, that he wants to redeem you, that he wants you to be known and to be whole again and to find hope. Well, there's one more offer that I find in this particular passage. It's where I, I got the whole theme for the message, and that is about hope. Forgiveness is offered through the cross, and access is gained through the torn curtain, but hope, hope is restored through an empty tomb. Hope comes in when Jesus gets up. In Mark chapter 16, here in verses 1 through 7, the women go uh, to do the thing which is customary by their laws, and that is they're going to anoint the mummified body. This was the kind thing to do who had, to a person who had gone into the afterlife to care for the body. 
And they wonder when we get to the tomb, how are we going to roll the rock back? Uh, the, uh, there are, there's all sorts of estimates as to how big this rock was. Uh, a couple of decades ago, some, uh, some engineers at Georgia Tech uh, determined that the rock weighed somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 pounds. And so these women are wondering, well, how are we going to get this rock out of the way so that we can get into the tomb, into the side of this hill where his body is laid? But when they get there, of course, they see that the, the stone is rolled away. And when they get there, they see the stone is rolled back, and they're met by what we, what we can only assume is an angel, a guy who's dressed in a white robe, and, and they're alarmed. And he said, don't be afraid. I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus, but let me just remind you, he's risen. Come and look at the place where his body used to be because it's not there any longer. We look at this life and we say to ourselves, death is the final enemy. That's the thing that we got to overcome. I mean, we do everything we can to overcome death and extend our lives. We do everything we can medically to try to figure out the right pills and the right vitamins and the right supplements and the right exercise regimen. We try to figure out all this stuff to make our life last longer and longer and longer because we all intuitively know that death is the enemy. And here, what we find is that God can take care of even that final enemy. Because in the resurrection, God executes death. In the resurrection, God puts an end to our final enemy of death. And He gives us hope restored to our lives that that enemy that we are facing, that is bearing down on us, that just will not relent, will not give up, that we know that the diagnosis is coming or we've already gotten it, or we know that it's just around the corner, or you just drive on Manatee Avenue. I mean, you just know that death is imminent at any time, right? It's the enemy that is after you. And in the resurrection, God executes death. In fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry, there is one occurrence where Jesus himself faces a friend's death. There's a guy by the name of Lazarus. He's a close friend to Jesus, and he dies. And several days after his death, Jesus goes to meet with the family, knowing what he's about to do. He is about to perform the greatest of all miracles. And when he gets there, Martha, who is the brother of Lazarus, is basically mad because she knows the power that Jesus has, and he didn't show up when Lazarus was sick. He's waited for Lazarus to be dead and in the tomb. And it says in John chapter 11 that Martha is, she's, she's a little upset. Jesus is telling her that her brother's going to rise again. And she says, I, I know that he's going to rise at the resurrection, like at the end of days, like when, when God closes the history books. I know that we're all going to live again somehow, some way. But it says here in John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. You see, the resurrection is not just an event, it's also a person. 
The resurrection is Jesus himself. He is the one who holds the power of the resurrection. And so we gather on Easter because we believe that there is something after our physical death. There's something that comes next, that we face God, that we come face to face with him, that there is something that is held in the balance scales about our lives. And so we have to decide, we have to choose who are are we going to place our faith in. Do you want to honestly, really, completely place your faith in yourself? That you were good enough, nice enough, moral enough, upstanding enough, ethical enough. I mean, maybe you can fool some of us about how good of a person you are, but when you are quietly by yourself, alone with your thoughts and who you really are, Is that the power that you want to stand before a holy and a righteous God who is king, he is a good king, who has offered you salvation, but you would say, nah, I'll just handle this on my own, thank you very much. Or do you want to do what I've done? And I'll just tell you, this is what I've done, is that I've decided that I'm going to go with the guy who stood up out of the grave. That's the one I'm going to go with. And so, do you want hope? Well, the good news is that Jesus offers you eternal life. Not just like a good time while you're here on the earth. Not just that he can soothe your boo-boos. Not just that when you pray to him like he's a lucky magic, you know, rabbit's foot, that you can get a good parking space at the UTC mall. Uh, He's not just like a magic charm in our life. But that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the Savior of humanity, and that if we put our faith in Him, He says, I'll give you everlasting life. At the very end of the, of the Bible, there is the book of Revelation. It is this climactic, apocalyptic, Armageddon kind of scene as to how God is going to close up the history books on the earth. But before you get into all of the apocalyptic part of bowls of wrath and plagues on the earth and, and, and you know, all of this symbolic and metaphorical things that are going to happen, the writer John of the letter is given a vision of Jesus. And Jesus stands there in the heavens in great power, with great glory. And, and when John sees him, he does the thing that we ought to do when, if any of us saw Jesus in his resurrected, glorified form. It says that I fell down as if I were a dead man. He humbled himself before the resurrected Jesus. And it says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he, talking about Jesus, laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and hell. Jesus is the one who holds the keys to our very life. Jesus is the one who is the first and the last. Jesus is the one who is alive forevermore. And so here are these offers. Look at them all together. Forgiveness offered through the cross access gained through the torn veil, hope restored through an empty tomb. You see, because that forgiveness that is offered through the cross is because we're sinners who need to be saved. That access that is 
given through a torn temple curtain. It's because we are rebels who need a relationship with God. That hope that is restored through an empty tomb, it is because we are the hurting that need God's help. Spiritual forgiveness and access and hope, you can have it today. You don't have to wait till next week. You don't have to wait to the next holiday. You don't have to do anything special. There's no religious, you know, activity that we're going to ask you to go through. How do you get all of this hope? The Bible is so clear. The person who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. The person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that God has raised Him from the dead, you trust in that and you will be saved. Even though that the debt that we owe is a debt of death because we have an offended, a righteous, and a holy God, He says, but I have paid all of your debt. I was willing to pay the ransom for your own rebellion. I am the one who is willing to give the sacrifice that would end the sacrificial system. I am the one who is willing to defeat death so that you can have the ultimate hope in life. And so today, I want to ask you if you're willing and ready to take the step of faith. And so here's the offer that I make to you today. All you have to do is just say the Lord. You just have to speak to Him. You don't have to come up here and say anything to me. You don't have to declare it uh, to, in some kind of special, you know, uh, rambling prayer of words. It just has to be the cry of your own heart. It just has to be the internal, faithful cry of the human heart that says, I know that God is perfect. I know that I am a sinner. I know that Christ died for my sins. I know that He has risen from the dead, and I'm putting my faith in Him. Not in what I've done, not in what anybody else has done, not in my attendance record, not in my accomplishments resume. I'm putting my faith in Christ because He got up from the grave and, and He defeated my sin debt. He paid for it. He defeated my death. He paid for it. And so I will trust in Him as the Son of of the living God. So let me ask you, are you willing to take that offer? Let's pray together.